0: Our second Bible reading is Luke chapter 19 verses 28 through 44 on page 11 of the service program. After Jesus said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mountain that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent left and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now, as he was going, they were spreading their cloaks on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus replied, I tell you, If these stop speaking, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd be grateful if you could keep that page open so we can look together at the details in that Bible passage during this sermon. First, let's bow our heads and pray for God to be with us. Heavenly Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your Son's glory our supreme concern. Amen. You might be surprised to learn that for decades Grand Central Station wasn't the only magnificent rail station in midtown Manhattan. For decades, Grand Central had a rival, Penn Station. Between 1910 and 1963, the year of its demolition, Penn Station thrilled commuters with its size and grandeur, its columns and eagles, its pink granite exterior. The photographer Irving Stetner said that Penn Station was a place that gave dignity to people, a place where you felt you were living in a better world. It was marble and iron and very graceful, a place with high ceilings, where you felt more worthy than on the street. The contrast with the current Penn Station, if you know it, is painful. In the words of one architectural historian, of that time, the time of the demolition and the construction of the new Penn Station. He said, we used to enter the city like gods. We scuttle in now like rats. Anyone who sees photos of the old Penn Station and compares it with the current station can't help asking, why was it demolished? Why did that destruction happen? The answer is simple, for money, its owners could make more money by getting rid of the above ground part of the station, the beautiful part and putting up a sports complex in its place. Nearly 2,000 years ago, many people asked a similar question. Why was it destroyed? About not just one building, but a whole city. In the year 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was devastated by the Roman army. Its buildings were set on fire and demolished. Why did that destruction happened? Jerusalem was the capital city of God's chosen people, his beloved chosen people. Why would God allow Jerusalem to be destroyed? That question is answered by Jesus in today's Bible passage. He gives the answer ahead of time in 33 AD, some 40 years before the destruction happened. In this Bible passage, Jesus accurately prophesies the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And in the final sentence of the passage, he explains why Jerusalem will be destroyed. He says, because you, meaning the city of Jerusalem, did not recognize the time of your visitation. He's talking about the visit that's about to happen, his own visit to Jerusalem. He's the Messiah, God's promised king, but he knows Jerusalem will reject him. Look at how the mood of this passage changes. The mood switches from shouts of joy in verse 37 to tears of lament in verse 41. The shouts of joy are heard as Jesus approaches the summit of the Mount of Olives, but then the tears of lament start to flow when Jesus reaches the crest of the hill and Jerusalem suddenly comes into view, its towers and buildings and temple. Jesus knows he's the king. He knows Jerusalem will reject him. He knows Jerusalem will be destroyed as a result. He's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for the city and its people. There are two groups in this passage. One group declares Jesus to be king and... The other group will reject him as king. Before we explore the relevance of this passage for our own lives today, we need to look more closely at the declaration and the rejection. So we'll begin with shouts of joy, verses 28 through 40. Shouts of joy. Please look down with me to verse 37 and I'll read from there. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus had Many more disciples by this time than just the famous ones, Peter, John, and James, and the other disciples who made up the Twelve. In John's account of this event, we're told that the crowd with Jesus as he approached Jerusalem was a large one. So instead of visualizing just a small group of men shouting those words, we should picture dozens of people, men and women, perhaps hundreds of people, making... An unmissable roar of sound. Think of the Occupy Wall Street protesters who gathered downtown in Zuccotti Park in 2011. All day, all week, Occupy Wall Street. If you think of those shouts, that's the kind of volume we should have in mind as we read verse 38. Blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest! Now, this wasn't normal procedure for Jesus and his disciples. This was not their usual way of entering towns or cities. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say I am? and Peter answers, The Messiah of God, Jesus then strictly warns his disciples not to tell that to anyone. He warns them to keep it to themselves. And we find that kind of reluctance to go public in all four Gospels. Jesus typically kept his identity under wraps, and yet here his identity is shouted aloud. There's a new strategy underway for this final phase of Jesus' ministry. All of a sudden, Jesus is willing to let his disciples shout out loud that he is God's promised king. Israel's long-awaited saviour, the Messiah. He wants Jerusalem to know who he is. That shift in strategy to a public declaration of kingship begins earlier in the passage. Jesus' mode of transportation signals that he is God's king. Bethany, mentioned in verse 29, is just two miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus could easily have walked but instead he calls for a colt, the male foal of a donkey. And he doesn't want any old colt, a hand-me-down colt that has carried riders before. No, he calls for a colt on which no one yet has ever sat. Jesus will be the first person to ride it. It will be his colt. Now, Jesus calls for a colt because one of the Old Testament's earliest prophecies about God's promised king paints a picture of the king and his cult in Genesis 49 Jacob says of the tribe of Judah the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his pause quote that's the king of kings the king who all nations should obey. Then Jacob goes on, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. So from the earliest times, God's people pictured their future king, the king of kings, the one who all nations should obey. They pictured him with his colt. Then 500 years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Zechariah added, Further detail to everyone's mental picture of the king with his colt. We heard that prediction earlier in the service, in the Bible reading that Sean read to us. Zechariah prophesied that when God's king finally came, when he finally arrived in Jerusalem, in Zion, he would be riding on a colt. Listen again to Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and riding on a donkey, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's a picture in everyone's minds based on those prophecies in Genesis and Zechariah. And Jesus very deliberately chooses to fit that picture and make it a reality. From verse 29, and you may have noticed this during the reading, from verse 29 all the way through to verse 34, there's a lot of information, a surprising amount of information, about how Jesus actually gets his hands on a cult. And that's because the way he gets hold of a colt also speaks of his kingly identity. He sends two disciples ahead of him. He tells them they will find a colt tied near the entrance to the village. And then he instructs them to untie the colt and bring it to him. He correctly anticipates that someone will likely say to those disciples, why are you untying the colt? So he gives them a line to say, a ready-made response. The Lord has need of it. Everything then happens just as he has foreseen and he gets his cult. That is what is called royal appropriation. Royal appropriation of other people's property. The Lord has need of it. In the original language, the word translated Lord can also be translated owner. The owner has need of it. Who can claim supreme ownership of any donkey in Israel? Only the king. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel tells the Israelites, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. There's then a long list of bullet points, including this bullet point, the best of your donkeys he will take for his own use. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's exercising his kingly right to take a donkey for his own use. Now, I'm speaking to Americans today, mostly Americans. And uh, I appreciate your whole political system is set up to stop this kind of thing from happening. So you might be a little uncomfortable with what Jesus is doing here. As a subject of Her Majesty the Queen, however, I have no problem with it whatsoever. If men wearing white gloves had ever shown up at my home in England and said, Bernard, the Queen has need of your car, I'd have said, take it, and it would have been one of the most memorable days of my life. The people mentioned in verse 33 may have already known Jesus. They may have recognised those two disciples sent to untie the cult. But whatever the backstory, the cult's owners seem to be as comfortable with royal appropriation as I am. They're evidently willing for the disciples to take the colt away because the Lord needs it. Once the colt has been brought to Jesus, Luke tells us at the end of verse 35 that they put Jesus on it. That detail is worth noting because just as Jesus could have walked to Jerusalem, he could have mounted the colt by himself. By definition, a colt is not fully grown, not hard to climb on top of. But when people have a king among them, they like to take every opportunity to express loyalty and devotion. And that's what's going on here. Jesus permits his disciples to lift him up and put him onto the colt. I picture two big disciples, one on Jesus' right, one on his left. They crouch down and he puts his arms on their shoulders. They put a hand under each thigh and lift him up onto the colt's back. So even the way that he gets onto the colt points to his kingship. His servants won't allow him to scramble up onto the colt by himself, not the king. The king should be carefully lifted into position and he permits his disciples to do that. What's happening in this passage is a little bit like someone dressing up as Batman for a cosplay convention. When someone dresses up as Batman, they want people to recognize that they are Batman. They don't want people to say, sorry, who are you you supposed to be? Similarly, Jesus wants to match up with the picture of kingship presented in the Old Testament, the picture of the promised king. He wants people to know who he is claiming to be. The difference, of course, with that cosplay analogy is that we all know someone dressed up as Batman isn't actually Batman. But when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on his colt, he truly is the king. He truly is fulfilling the prophecies. Jesus' disciples already believed that he was king. And it seems they've understood, perhaps from everything to do with the colt, that the time has come to go public. The time has come to make a public declaration of Jesus' kingship. That's why they lay down their cloaks on the road. Their cloaks, a prized personal possession in the ancient world, worn during the day, slept in at night. They laid down their cloaks in the dirt. They knew that to pledge allegiance to a newly declared king, you were supposed to lay down your cloak on the ground in front of him. That's what Jehu's supporters did when he was declared king, according to 2 Kings chapter 9. The disciples turned that dusty road into a carpet because they want the world to know that Jesus is God's king. As Jesus' cult treads over those cloaks on its way towards jerusalem the shouts of joy begin to be heard blessed is the king the one who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest jesus could have stopped that shouting verse 39 tells us some religious leaders urge jesus to rebuke his disciples for making such grand claims about him. But instead of silencing the shouters, he says, I tell you, if these stop speaking, the stones will cry out. Jesus isn't being secretive anymore. Those days are over. He's deliberately presenting himself to Jerusalem as the promised king of kings. The cult, the cloaks, the joyful shouts going up from his disciples, they all add up to a challenge to Jerusalem Jesus is saying here I am your king what will you do with me Jesus is like a living exam a human midterm the people of Jerusalem have to figure out how they will deal with Jesus should they receive him as king or reject him a living breathing test is approaching their city. But Jesus himself already knows the outcome. He knows the city will make a fatal mistake, and that brings us to the last section of the passage. Tears of lament, verses 41 through 44. Tears of lament. In verse 42, Jesus addresses the city. He says, if you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace. Or as another Bible translation puts it, if you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? What what Jerusalem needs to do is receive Jesus as the king he really is. That is what would bring Jerusalem peace. But Jesus predicts that Jerusalem won't receive him as king. As we saw earlier, he says at the end of verse 44, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And that raises an obvious question. Why didn't the people recognize who was visiting them? Why didn't they receive Jesus as their king? Why did they overlook all of the fulfilled prophecies? Not just the ones fulfilled that very day, but countless other fulfilled Prophecies? Why did they overlook the miracles Jesus had done? Why did they overlook his perfect sinless character? Remember those words we heard earlier from Zechariah see, your king comes to you righteous. He was righteous, gentle, and riding on a donkey. He was gentle. Why didn't the people of Jerusalem see those things and make choices leading to peace instead of destruction? Jesus himself explains in verse 42, he says, The conditions for peace, the things that would lead to peace, have been, quote, hidden from your eyes. Hidden from your eyes. That's why Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. It's because the people of Jerusalem couldn't see who was right in front of them. At first, it sounds unfair how can the people of Jerusalem choose the right path if the right path is hidden from them? It sounds unfair, but we have to feed into this Bible passage what Luke has already written about Jesus' ministry earlier in his gospel. And what we find throughout Luke's gospel is that when people are proud and self-confident, they don't take Jesus seriously. They don't think Jesus is for them. When people in Luke's gospel, are satisfied with their own goodness, their own achievements, including their religious deeds, they don't think Jesus has anything to offer them. In Luke chapter 7, for example, there's a religious leader who keeps Jesus at arm's length. He's cold and unfriendly. He doesn't treat Jesus with the usual courtesies. And Jesus says to him, he who has been forgiven little loves little. The religious leader didn't think he needed forgiveness. He was satisfied with his own performance in life. And so he didn't love Jesus. He didn't see Jesus as his only hope. Jesus' true identity was hidden from him. Here in Luke 19, Jesus knows the same thing is about to happen in Jerusalem. He knows the people of that city won't see him as their only hope. They won't pay attention to his message. They won't honour him as their saviour. And so he weeps. As I said earlier, he's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for the city. Because of the punishment the city will receive. But Jesus will himself suffer as a result of the city's failure to recognise him as a result of his hiddenness from their eyes, because they don't think they need him, he will suffer. He'll be arrested, put on trial, and condemned to death by crucifixion. Soldiers will nail his living body to a cross. And six agonizing hours later, he will die. None of that will take Jesus by surprise. He tells his disciples in advance that it's going to happen. He rides into Jerusalem knowing it will happen. He rides into Jerusalem wanting it to happen because Jesus knows his death will provide forgiveness and he wants to provide forgiveness to sinful people like you and me. When Jesus died, he took the punishment for sins that we deserve. That is something you have to believe in. You have to say yes to it. You have to trust in Jesus and claim that forgiveness for yourself. It's rather like someone offering to pay off all your financial debts. You'd have to agree to that. You'd have to say, yes, I want you to do that for me. That's how it is with Jesus and his penalty-paying death. We have to come to him with faith and say, count me in. If you're here today as a non-Christian, you're not yet following Jesus, we're so glad to have you with us. I wonder, does Jesus seem like a shadowy figure to you? An interesting historical person, perhaps. An admirable historical person, perhaps. Not someone to trust in, not someone to believe in and, and follow. Perhaps you take the view that you just don't need him in your life. Because you're doing quite all right without him. That's where you're coming from today the message of this bible passage is that jesus is hidden from you the message of this passage is that you can't see him properly as things stand because he can only be truly recognized by people who know they need him jesus offers forgiveness eternal life and relationship with god If you don't think you need those things, you will look right past Jesus, as if he isn't there. You won't see him. But the Bible says you do need those things very badly. Verses 43 and 44 prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They are horrifying verses. The destruction was carried out by the Romans, but the ultimate cause is God's judgment. Remember those words at the end of verse 44 because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, we're meant to see that act of judgment and the many other similar acts of judgment in the Bible as proof that God punishes wrongdoing and will punish wrongdoing. It's not something I like talking about. It's something I have to talk about as a pastor. I have to warn people that a day of justice is coming when everyone who has ever lived will stand before God to give an account of their lives. Please don't be the human equivalent of the city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, waiting for God's condemnation and punishment. To face God on his day of justice without the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers is something that's too terrible to contemplate. Come to Jesus for forgiveness, while well, there's still time for you to do that, recognize your need for him and you will start to recognize him. You'll see him for who he really is. I spoke earlier about the religious leader in Luke 7 who acts coldly towards Jesus. In the same chapter, there's a woman who, Luke says, had lived a sinful life in that town. And far from acting coldly towards Jesus, she pours costly perfume. On Jesus' feet, she had been desperate for help, desperate for forgiveness. She saw that Jesus offered the help she needed, and she received it from him. Jesus tells her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Make that woman your example if you're not yet following Jesus. Come to Jesus with spiritual desperation like that woman, and you'll see him for who he is we've been thinking about the meaning of this passage for those not yet following jesus if you are following jesus that's most of us here today well we're in the same position as the disciples in verses 37 and 38 jesus is god's king like them we can praise god joyfully early in luke's gospel angels appear in the sky saying peace on earth Here in verse 38, people on earth say, peace in heaven. So heaven says, peace on earth. And earth replies, peace in heaven. It's like a vertical tunnel of peace. And through faith in Jesus, we enter that tunnel and enjoy never-ending peace with God. It's peace you haven't earned. Peace you aren't in the process of earning peace you won't earn. It's peace that Jesus has given you through his death and resurrection. You don't have to ride into town to save the day. Jesus has done that for you. You're on the receiving side of things. Yes, there are things we can do for Jesus. We can be useful in his service, just as we see his disciples, serving him usefully in this very passage. But our acts of service aren't salvation earning. In his love, Jesus rode through the gates of Jerusalem to certain death to earn our salvation. What a king he is. What a saviour he is. In a moment, we will join our voices with the voices of the disciples in verses 37 and 38 we will praise Jesus in our final song but don't turn off the praise tap at the end of the service keep that tap running if you see what i mean keep praising Jesus in your heart throughout the week to come he is your great king your great Saviour. Praise Him. Let's bow our heads to pray before we sing. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your Son Jesus. We are so grateful to you for His willingness to ride into Jerusalem to certain death for our sake. What a saviour he is. We praise you for him. We thank you for him. We pray that by your spirit, our hearts would keep generating praise for Jesus throughout the coming week. And We ask these things in his name. Amen.